Let's open the Word of God together to the epistle of James, and if you'll find chapter 2 and verse 5. Our walk through this epistle continues this morning as we consider once again the strong words of exhortation that James has given regarding the sin of showing favoritism or making distinctions within the body of Christ. You might recall that we addressed that sin last Lord's Day from the perspective of verse 1. And the sin is identified in chapter 2, verse 1, as holding one's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, or that is, treating some people different than others, even in the act of worship. And you might recall from last Lord's Day how James has given us an illustration of this sin by asking the readers of his epistle to consider what would happen if two visitors entered the service of worship at the same time. One, a rich man, appointed very magnificently, glittering jewelry and stunning white clothing, and at the same time, simultaneously, a poor man in tattered, dirty, uninspiring clothing associated with those who are destitute. That very thing may have happened a number of times among the churches that James originally wrote. The well-dressed man, James says, is welcomed like a celebrity and ushered to the very best seats in the house. The poor man, with his shabby attire, is simply put in his place. He's ordered to sit on the floor in verse 3 or to go to the back of the room and simply stand. But whatever he does, he is to get out of the way. He is to get in his place. And James identifies this as the sin of practicing evil discrimination. It is hypocrisy of the worst kind. He would would use the phrase double-mindedness to describe this kind of sin. They are tarnishing the name of Jesus. Their actions in in having differences in the way they welcomed these visitors is an act of denial, an act of betrayal of the gospel itself. Their worship, as we saw last Lord's Day, has become very man-centered. Their eyes are fixed on people and not on the Lord of glory. And so James, in the verses we're going to read now, offers his antidote to that sin, that grievous sin of practicing favoritism or practicing discrimination. We pick it up in chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? And there we have the word of the Lord. And may now our Father bless the preaching of his word for the good of his people. We're going to spend some time this morning examining this sin of favoritism. And we're going to do it a little differently than we might expect. We're going to look at the last two verses of this passage, verses 6 and 7. And there he further explains what this sin is really all about. It is the sin, in terms of another way of speaking of it, it is the sin of being completely inconsistent with what the church says she believes. 
As verse 6 makes it clear, by ordering the poor man to sit on the floor or stand in the back of the church, they have dishonored him and all those who are like him. In the course of their worship, the Lord of glory has been pushed to the side and men have assumed center stage and by their defective worship, they are actually causing hurt and pain to the most vulnerable among them. The way the members are conducting themselves in the act of worship is injurious. They are causing unnecessary grief because they're behaving badly in the worship of God. It's an amazing thing. Sinful misbehavior, not happening out in the world, not happening on the street, but sinful misbehavior happening before the Lord of glory in the place of worship. This is amazing, isn't it? Amazing. Corrupted worship. And the poor man they should have warmly embraced and encouraged and loved, he is being harmed. And you can imagine, if you were that man, if you were that poor man who stumbled into worship that day and you were treated so disrespectfully, would you ever go back to that church again? I don't think so. Because that man is thinking, you know, I I can get treated this way out in the world. That's the way the world treats me. But I've come among those who say they are the people of God, and lo and behold, they treat me the same way the world does. And you see the problem, don't you? The church is being inconsistent with her message. It is an awful, sad, and tragic thing. How in the world? I mean, I I know you're asking this question too, right? How in the world? Could any person come into a true New Testament church and be harmed? But here it is. Here it is. The church is being inconsistent with the teachings of the Bible, and they are being inconsistent with the teachings of Jesus and with his example. It's a sad thing. And then the apostle, or rather, the brother of our Lord Jesus, James, points out something else that's disturbing about the congregation. They've misunderstood the rich. They've dishonored the poor, and they've misunderstood the rich. James makes it clear that they have forgotten these rich folks that they are honoring are the very ones mistreating them. Look at the three ways the rich have harmed the church, according to James, in his historical context. They're the ones who oppress you, James says. They're the ones who drag you to court, James says. They're the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are known. And so you're giving preference to one of these people that's an enemy of God, and you're turning your back on someone who wants to find Christ. Well, we need to go back in time to understand why James would say such things about the rich. Why would he say that? We need to remember that the epistle of James was written very, very early among the letters of the New Testament. In fact, the epistle of James could very well be dated between 40 and 45 A.D., just a few years after the resurrection of Jesus. And you can imagine at that early time 
in that early part of the first century, there was a great deal of antipathy between the Jewish religious leaders and believers in Jesus, especially, especially Jewish believers in Jesus. There was a lot of hatred. The Jewish religious authorities wanted to destroy the church. And these Jewish religious authorities, composed of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were very wealthy and powerful people. And they, they were the cruelest of oppressors of poor Jews. And this is the background. Following the resurrection of Jesus, these Jewish rulers turned the heat up. And they made a specialty, as one scholar says, they made a specialty of harassing Christian Jews. And you remember that the audience to whom James is writing is largely composed of Christian Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And James is saying, do you remember, do you remember how the rich have hurt you? We don't have to look very hard in the Old, rather in the New Testament to find an example of this. You remember in Acts 4, just following Pentecost, Peter and John Converted Jews, as it were, Jewish men, disciples of Jesus, the first Christians, the first Christian preachers, are out on the streets of Jerusalem preaching, and, and lo and behold, Luke in Acts 4 tells us this, as they were speaking, as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sanhedrin came up upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And these Jewish authorities, Luke says, arrested Peter and John and put them into custody. And this is what James is talking about. And then you think of the man we know as Saul of Tarsus, one of those rich powerful Jewish leaders. In Acts 9, before he met Jesus, we read this of Paul or Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked from the high priest for letters from the synagogues or rather to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is any Christians, that is any Jewish Christians, Men or women, he would bring them bound back to Jerusalem. And this is in the mind of, of James, as he says, remember what the rich do? The rich and the powerful, they oppress you. They drag you to court, and they blaspheme the name of Jesus. Now, it should be clear that James is not condemning all wealthy people, is he? In fact, in the Bible, we meet many saints of God who are very wealthy. We think of Abraham himself, or Joseph, or Job, or the Levi, or rather, rather the man named Levi, Matthew, the disciple of our Lord Jesus. He is not condemning the wealthy. The Lord has no animus against the rich just because they're rich. But James is attacking the behavior that often results in association with wealth and the favoritism that is almost universally shown to those who are wealthy and powerful. This is what they are doing. They are showing unholy favoritism to the rich, and the rich ones that they're showing favoritism to just, just happen to be the enemies of Jesus. That's what's going on. And this is hypocrisy. 
This is duplicity. They become obsessed with the enemies of Jesus. They are desiring, as James will later speak of, they are desiring to be friends of the world. God is not glorified. The honorable name of Jesus is being blasphemed. And this is an ugly scene playing out in the church. The church is is being like the world, isn't it? In verse 5, James then begins to speak of how this is cured. How often have you dreamed of a cure or hoped for a cure for all of the illnesses of the world? How many times have you seen those commercials from the children's hospital where children are treated for cancer and you've longed for a pill or an injection that would empty that hospital out and send them on their way healthy? How often have you wanted to see cancer and Diabetes and heart and lung diseases and all viruses and all infections cured. We want that. We, we wish there was a magic pill, a drug, a vaccine to, to cure our illnesses. And James has identified a spiritual cancer in the church. And it's a bad one. It's devastating. Left unchecked, it would divide and injure and even bring the church down. But unlike all those dreaded diseases of mankind, there is, there is a pill for this one. There is a vaccine. It is effective on the sin of favoritism and all the associated diseases, all the associated spiritual diseases that go with this sin of discrimination or favoritism. And when this vaccine is taken, it will destroy the root, the root of favoritism, the root sin, which is pride. It will bring it down, guaranteed or your money back. And what is it? What is that cure? That if we take it this morning, we'll unify the church under the marvelous grace of Jesus. If we take this cure, it will promote vigorous worship and passionate service of God. It is guaranteed if we take this pill, if we receive this injection, it is guaranteed to cause us to love our Savior more and to obey Jesus with greater fervency. It is is guaranteed to increase our love for the Word of God and to send us into the world and to give us an enduring hope that will sustain us come what may. What is the cure? What is it? Verse 5. Let's read it again. The cure is embedded in this question. Has God not chosen? Has God not chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Whatever ails the church can be cured with that injection. It is found in the word chosen chosen (coughs) and here we are introduced to one of the grandest of all truths in the word of God the truth of divine election now just saying that word some of you got tense and we do 
Many experience great turmoil of mind and soul when you consider God's electing grace. Controversy and debate seem to follow that doctrine everywhere it goes. Either you love it and you accept it or you hate it with a passion untold. And you see it as something grotesque and maybe foreign to the nature of God. But here it is. And it's coming from the pen not only of one who knew Jesus on a personal level, but the very brother of Jesus. And the cure he lays out for this horrible cancer that has invaded the church is the truth that God has chosen us for salvation. James is putting this truth into the faces of every member of those churches to whom he wrote. He is concerned about their pride. He is concerned about their worldliness, and it's gotten the best of them. And so the response is a rebuke in the form of a question. And you'll notice in verse 5, he loves them. This is a rebuke from love. He calls them my beloved brothers. And the rebuke lovingly presented by the brother of Jesus is this question that anticipates a yes answer. Has God not chosen you? There is behind the conversion of every sinner, it's been said, a secret history a secret history that owes its origin to God's choice, not yours. That applied to the original readers of this letter in 45 AD, and it applies to every Christian here this morning. There is a secret history behind your conversion. Your conversion to Christ owes its origin to God's choice. And the doctrine to which James refers is not hidden in Scripture. It is explicitly revealed. One scholar calls it the very bone structure of the whole Bible. Our God is a choosing God. Salvation is fully of the Lord. And the only reason that any sinner comes to faith in the Savior is due to the secret, sovereign, gracious choice of God made in eternity past. Now there's your cure. You want to take it? like you have a choice. Oh, this isn't the, isn't the first time James has mentioned this, is it? You think about chapter 1, verse 18. He, he launched the rocket then, didn't he? When he said, of his own will, he brought you forth by the word of truth. Who are you? Who do you think you are, Mr. Big Pants? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And now he says it again. Has God not chosen you? There is nothing in all of the word of God that will challenge and take down human pride and destroy the sin of favoritism quicker than that one truth. Now notice what he says. God, he says has chosen them for salvation, but he says he has chosen the poor for salvation. Now James is certainly not implying that God's elective mercies only fall upon the poor. They don't. 
But James is helping the people of God remember that our awesome God, the sovereign choosing God, takes a special delight in electing for salvation those people the world ignores. That's his point. He loves to save those people whom the world says they are of no account. They have no voice. They have no power. Those people on the margins, those no one sees or cares for. Our Father delights in choosing the destitute and insignificant people to be His children. And that delight in saving the insignificant goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to the first times we hear of His elective mercies. Think about the words, the humbling words of, of Deuteronomy 7. Think about the nation of Israel. God, in eternity past, elected one nation through which to bring the Savior, and he didn't elect the others. He elected one nation. Why? Why did, why did Jesus have to come from among the Jews? Why not another people group? Why the Jews? Why Israel? Well, this question is addressed in Deuteronomy 7, and it has something to say to us. The Lord says through Moses to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That means I have chosen you. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now, if you don't like the doctrine of election, you won't get very far in the Bible because here it is in Deuteronomy 7. The Lord says, I've chosen Israel out of all the people on the face of the earth to be my treasured possession. And then the Lord says this, and listen carefully. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. You see that? The Israelites were nothing in the eyes of the world. The Israelites were insignificant, poor, and weak, and destitute. And lo and behold, they spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And some of you think you're having a bad day. Can you imagine 400 years of slavery? They had no army. They had no power. They had no king to deliver them. They were at the mercy of Pharaoh 400 years. They were not significant. You wouldn't choose them to be on your team if you were playing basketball. No talent, no ability, no, no worldly goods, nothing to commend themselves to you. But the Lord, the Lord chose them simply because he put his love on them. And it has always been the case, it's been said, that the Lord's true people are predominantly less well off. That's the way he moves. Fast forward a bit in the Bible and think about the people who followed Jesus. Who were they? Tax collectors. Who were those people mysteriously, magnetically, irresistibly drawn to follow Jesus? Tax collectors despise people, IRS agents. 
and criminals and men and women of ill repute and those desperately sick and the needy and the hopeless. If you looked out at the crowd of Jesus, if you did your demographic studies, it would be the common people, those, those on the margins, those missed, those that don't matter to anybody. And then think about the disciples. Be honest with me. Would you have chosen those 12 guys? Really? Common fishermen, uneducated, no power, poor. And Jesus said to them one day, he spun around and he said, wait a minute, brothers, you did not choose me. I chose you. You hear that? And this is James' point. You have fallen all over yourself when this rich man walked in. You treated him like a celebrity. You raised him so high. You elevated him and you brought down Jesus. And you dishonored, perhaps, one of the elect sheep of Jesus. You see that? The Apostle Paul, he wanted the Corinthians to get this too. Remember, the Corinthian church was a church in big trouble. Must have been a Baptist church. Couldn't have been Presbyterian, right? Because we're perfect, right? The first church of Corinth is a mess, isn't it? You can just read it. We're, we're reading 2 Corinthians, and they're still in a mess, and they're still challenging the authority of Paul. It's a mess of a church. So what does he do? In chapter number one of his first letter, he offers the antidote. And he says to the Corinthians, and James would add his amen, Paul says in chapter one, verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Stop. Consider who you are. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish, namely you. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And then he ends that great paragraph, and he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, do you, do you see where this, this is going? There's your antidote. This doctrine that salvation belongs to the Lord and that in sovereign grace he reaches down and saves his elect, that is diametrically opposed to every fraction of human pride. That's why we hate this doctrine. Think about human choice as opposed to divine choice. Maybe you think about the way you picked your team when you played pickup basketball at the school playground. You picked the fastest, the tallest, the bestest, right? 
And every human choice is like that. It is made on the basis of ability, of importance, of influence, of wealth, and some other advantage, but not the choice of God. His elective mercies don't work that way. The reason the churches to which James wrote are behaving the way they are is they have forgotten this doctrine. How did they become Christians in the first place? Because once they were poor, wretched sinners, see, once they were clothed in the shabby apparel of their moral and spiritual depravity, once they were under the justified wrath of God, but now in Christ Jesus, because of the Father's sovereign love, they are new creations. They are new people, the children of God, joint heirs with Christ. They are a temple of the Holy Spirit. They are the true people of God, chosen and redeemed and set free. And so James is saying... Look around and see who's worshiping with you this morning. Who is it? Look around. And how many of them would be in the kingdom if God acted the way they are acting? How many of you would be in the kingdom if God behaved like that? If he were impressed by worldly power? If God was a celebrity worshiper, would you be in the kingdom? If God fawned at earthly riches, if he loved the beautiful, powerful people, the intellectual elite only, how many of you would be in? No, we have to consider our calling, and that's a humble thing to do. Look around. And there are many foolish and weak, undeserving, who would never get a second glance from the world, and yet here you are, sitting at the king's table. Oh, this doctrine magnifies the grace of God that reaches down so far to find us in our spiritual poverty. And if we embrace it, it will change our lives. This doctrine will reorient your whole life. It takes away all ground for human boasting. It lets us only boast in the Lord. It teaches us to love our neighbor and makes us passionate in preaching the gospel. But there's more we need to uncover this morning. Look at, look at what else he says in verse 5. The Lord has chosen, he has chosen the poor that are being ignored to make them rich in faith. And you see the play on words. They are poor as the world measures it, but as God looks at it, they are rich in faith. And he's chosen you to be rich in faith. He granted you the faith to believe it is the gift of God. And by faith alone, in Christ alone, we are now rich in Christ. And worldly poverty is simply the background that throws into relief the great glory of the riches of Christ that we have. We may never be rich. And we may never be powerful by worldly measures. But we are rich 
in faith. And not only that, heirs of the kingdom. All that Jesus possesses as the King of kings and Lord of lords is ours too. One day, we're going to join Christ and sit in his royal splendor on his throne with him. The Apostle John, he said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, and we shall see him just as he is. We are rich. We are rich. He has saved us. He has called us. He elected us in eternity. He called us by the gospel in time and space. And we repented and believed, Paul says, in order to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy. And we have an inheritance that is eternal. One writer put it this way, in Christ, because of God's elective mercies, because his choice is based strictly on his sovereign love, the foolish become faithful, the weak become witnesses, the lowly become loyal, the despised become disciples, the world's nobodies become the Lord's nobility. We are rich because God is gracious. How could we ever be impressed by worldly status knowing that? A long time ago, there was a woman named Hannah, and she wanted a child, couldn't have one, and then the Lord gave her one, and she was the mother of Samuel. And when it became apparent that that child was coming, she, she breathed a prayer, and the prayer of Hannah is recorded verbatim in 1 Samuel 2. And listen to the interesting things that Hannah prays. The Lord kills, and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes the poor, and he makes the rich. He brings low, and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit sit with princes and inherit seats of honor. Can you imagine perhaps what even Hannah could not see, that she was thinking of the coming Savior, the sovereign King who would reach down to the lowly and despised and the poor who live in the ash heap and by sovereign grace bring them up and make them to sit with princes and the seats of honor. This is what James is saying. That's the God who saved you. Or think of Job, that man, that wealthy man, that righteous man, and as his world falls apart, by, by the direct hand of God, as it were, 
as his life is reduced to tears and ashes. Job, in a moment of worship, utters that famous line, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We owe everything to him. And as long as we think we've earned our salvation, we will be divided and we will be people watchers and people worshipers. And we will be prideful and narcissistic and our worship will be corrupted. But if we ever embrace the fact that the only reason we're in the kingdom is because God willed it and God loved us, then the ground is level underneath our feet. How could we ever, knowing that, how could we ever fail to see the needy ones among us? I want you to think with me about some things. Think with me about the fact that God's precious elect ones are everywhere. We don't know who they are. We call them by preaching the gospel. We, we preach the gospel to whoever will believe, whoever will hear. We don't know who the sheep of Jesus are. We just go preach. But think about the fact that the sheep of Jesus, the precious lambs, those elect ones, elect in eternity, are everywhere around us. That waitress, that waitress at the pizza joint with all the dark mascara and the piercings all over her face and her tattooed body may be a lamb of God. She may be one of the poor ones that Jesus came to save. And that beggar under the bridge, he might be one of the precious elect of God. And that man with the shovel and digging the ditch by the side of the road with no education, that man may be a precious child of God. The one who picks up your garbage. And even that teenager who pulls up behind you in his car with the music blaring. One day that may be a young man or a young woman who because God chose them in eternity will repent and come into the kingdom. That may be one of your brothers and sisters in Christ one day. Or that black man over there. Or that Asian woman. Or that Middle Eastern couple over there. Or that couple from China or Africa or South America or Central America. God has his chosen everywhere. Let's not mistreat them. That's what was happening that day when that poor man came there. That man with all the addictions, the young lady with the sixth grade education, and those of every race and class and tribe and tongue and nation, for God so loved the world. How could we possibly mistreat anyone? How could we ever boast about anything except the grace of God? How could we ever conduct our lives according to the standards of the world? We've been chosen. We have received mercy, infinite, true, full, free, and by love alone. There is no reason but love.
There is no reason that you're a Christian outside the love of God. You see how this doctrine drives us to our knees. We can't explain it. We can't figure it out. We can't harmonize it with anything else we believe. It just is. It just is the truth. And we need to embrace it. Because it is the gospel torpedo designed to destroy the one thing that creates havoc in the church, our pride. In love, the apostle says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. May the Lord humble us today. May the Lord captivate us with the knowledge of his sovereign choice, his amazing love. And may our hearts warm with Christ's own compassion so that all that we encounter along the way will learn of our Savior and King, our great King, our great King who chose us. May His name be praised. Would you join me as we come to the table of the Lord?